Poverty. War. Deportation. Persecution. Adventure. Famine. Love. Opportunity. A better life. A fresh start. What would it take for you to leave your home? To leave everything and everyone you know to move to another country and start again? Over the past 400 years, that's exactly what millions of British people have been doing. Today, the news headlines are full of stories of migrants trying to come to Britain. But for most of this country's history, it's actually been the other way around. You go back to the 17th century and people were much more worried about emigration than they were about immigration because, by and large, people didn't want to come here. They wanted to get out of here. The late Eric Richards, eminent historian of British migration, described how in the 19th century, the British Isles created the prototype for mass migration that's since been emulated across the world. Yet this history isn't well remembered today. To talk about migration today and the numbers of people coming to Britain without recognising that Britain was the biggest exporter of people in the 19th century is, is wrong. We often think that British emigration is a thing of the past. I think a fact that a lot of people won't know is that even in the present day, Britain has an emigration rate that is one of the highest in the world. So why has such a small island nation produced so many migrants? And how have they shaped the world we live in today? I am Mukti Jain Campion, and in this new series of podcasts, I'll be speaking to people who are shedding new light on this often hidden history. Welcome to Departures, a podcast series from the Migration Museum, exploring 400 years of British emigration. Episode 1, The Swarming of the English. Ready! London, 1606, a bitterly cold December day. On the River Thames at Blackwall, a wooden sailing ship called the Susan Constant is being prepared for departure. Ready to set sail. Crammed below deck are dozens of men and boys setting out to start a new life in America. Gentlemen on their feather beds, more humble labourers doubling up in straw cots. A preacher, a barber, soldiers, carpenters and bricklayers all embarking on a perilous 4,000-mile journey into the unknown. In the days of sail, nobody really knew how long it would take. The majority of people who went probably had never seen the sea before. They certainly couldn't swim, and they were terrified. The idea of going on a ship on the sea for weeks on end was completely terrifying and unheard of. They were bidding adieu to their native land forever, and they were saying goodbye to friends and family who they'd be leaving behind. And they would genuinely not expect to see them again, probably not to speak in any form ever again in this life. The Susan Constant was one of three ships dispatched by the Virginia Company of London to found the first permanent English settlement in America under an exclusive charter from King James I. Funded by investors, the venture was expected to deliver a profit and build English power in the Americas to rival that of the Spanish. The departure of those three ships and their 105 passengers marks the beginning of organised mass emigration to America from the British Isles. 
My name is James Evans. I'm a historian and writer, and my most recent book was called Emigrants, Why the English Sailed to the New World. Thanks for joining me. Give me a sense of the sort of people who were leaving England in the 17th century to go across the Atlantic. A wide variety of people went, but I think the majority of the people in the early days tended to be younger, single men. People spoke at the time about the people who went often being, as they were described, the most vivid people, and they were younger, more energetic. They had more, you know, get up and go, as we would put it, because it was a very big thing to do. You know, it's a big thing now, but in the 17th century, you can only imagine how big a thing for people who were undertaking a voyage which would last months to go to a colony of which they knew very little, if anything at all, to live somewhere where you you didn't know whether you would be welcomed or whether there would be the basic things like houses and shops and, you know, all of the kind of the infrastructure of daily life, which might be reasonably well established here, you wouldn't necessarily be able to expect any of that. Earlier transatlantic European explorers had painted a vision of a land bursting with gold and precious gems, and a life of ease and plenty that awaited the brave. For the first Virginia Company colonists, the words of a new poem would have been resounding in their ears. Ode to the Virginian Voyage, Michael Drayton, 1606 You brave, heroic minds, worthy your country's name that honour still pursue, go and subdue, whilst loitering hinds lurk here at home with shame. Britons, you stay too long, quickly aboard bestow you, and with a merry gale swell your stretched sail with vows as strong as the winds that blow you. And cheerfully at sea, success you'll still entice to get the pearl and gold and ours to hold Virginia. Earth's only paradise. But it wasn't just the lure of gold. A significant group of emigrants in the early 17th century were religious Puritans who were being heavily persecuted in England at the time. And there's no question that they felt that God was speaking to them. They would pore over their Bibles and look for encouragement. They would read about cases of biblical migration to a promised land. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, unto the land I will show thee. And that's precisely how they saw the decision to migrate from England to America in the 17th century as being a kind of divinely inspired move towards a promised land. William Bradford, who became one of those to emigrate aboard the Mayflower in 1620, describes the deliberations of the Puritans in seeking their new home. The place they had thoughts on was some of those vast and unpeopled countries of America, which are fruitful and fit for habitation, being devoid of all civil inhabitants, where there are only savage and brutish men which range up and down. One of the most commonly reoccurring themes is this notion of this wonderland of resources uh, in which the presence of natives and their mastery over the land is vastly minimized. Linford Fisher is Associate Professor of History at Brown University, and he specializes in Native American history and the early colonial period in North America. And so there does begin to be this sort of impression that there's not that many natives around and they aren't using the land in really profitable ways. 
and yet that the land itself is bursting with resources. So all the things that English men and women are finding in short supply, you know, timber, uh, but also space and food items that grow naturally that might not be present in England are all there in abundance. So you take that, these reports, and combine it with this Old Testament or Hebrew Bible idea of the promised lamb and this place that has sort of been set aside for Christians to use properly. I mean, these are powerful ideologies that are at the heart of settler colonialism that really shape the expectations in terms of what English colonists think they will see and find when they arrive, but then also how they expect to use and to be given the rights to use the land when they arrive as well. Charlie, who is on the hell there? The first convoy of ships headed to Virginia is repeatedly delayed by adverse weather. It has to stop in the Canary Isles and again in the Caribbean to restock with food and fresh water. After over four months at sea, the English settlers finally arrive in Chesapeake Bay. They follow the river inland and choose a spot to plant themselves in a place they hope will be secluded from potential Spanish aggressors. They chop down trees and build a fort. This will become Jamestown, named after their king. But as spring turns to summer, the river quickly becomes a mosquito-infested swamp, with water turning brackish and undrinkable. Diseases such as dysentery and malaria start to take their toll. Our men were destroyed with cruel diseases, as swellings, fluxes, burning fevers, and by wars. But for the most part, they died of mere famine. There were never Englishmen left in a foreign country in such misery as we were in this new discovered Virginia. Observations by Master George Percy, 1607. Within three months, their numbers have dwindled down to fewer than 40 men. The survivors struggle to build homes and grow food. It becomes evident that the selection of men who've come from England are perhaps not best suited to construction or farming. And they discover that the land is not as empty as they thought. So when the English arrived in Virginia in 1607, they were perched on the edge of a large collection of native towns that might have contained 15 to 20,000 natives uh, over several hundred square miles. So this wasn't a series of hunter and gatherer bands that had no sense of place or space or technology or foodways. Instead, English settlers arrive very much at the mercy of larger populations. There's a population, uh, maybe not density, but presence, that's really important to understand. Population of the Americas in terms of Native Americans at the time of contact is roughly equal to the population of Europe, roughly 60 million people. And so it's not the case that Europeans are coming to an empty landscape begging to be developed and to have civilization brought to it. Instruction by the London Company to the first settlers in Virginia, 1606. You must have great care not to offend the naturals if you can issue it, and employ some few of your company to trade with them for corn and all other lasting victuals, and this you must do before that they perceive you mean to plant among them. The 1620 arrival of the Mayflower further up the coast in Massachusetts is popularly seen as the date of first contact. But actually, by then, there's been a long period of intermittent encounters. 
And so by the time the pilgrims do show up in 1620, for a century prior to that, there's actually quite a long trail of other Europeans. They show up, they they trade, sometimes they uh, kidnap or capture natives from the coastline, take them back and sell them as uh, servants and slaves. Native Americans across the continent have experienced the brutality of European guns and deadly diseases such as smallpox, which have decimated their population. If they're wary of these new arrivals, it's not without good reason. This arrival in 1620 is not happening in a vacuum, and there's this deeper memory that natives have of violence that uh, the English colonists and explorers were enacting upon natives. The vulnerability that the English colonists feel is also clear in William Bradford's description of the arrival of the Mayflower. They had now no friends to welcome them, nor inns to entertain or refresh their weather-beaten bodies, no houses or much less town to repair to, to seek succour. It is recorded in scripture as a mercy to the apostle and his shipwrecked company that the barbarians showed them no small kindness in refreshing them. But these savage barbarians, when they met with them, were readier to fill their sides full of arrows. So the pilgrims arrive in 1620, and they are really helpless, honestly. They arrive in the wintertime, essentially. They're starving, and they immediately begin to root through native villages looking for corn. And this causes some early tensions. So there's early accounts of natives, of course, um, attacking pilgrims who are rooting through their graves and through their winter stores for food and so forth. And what evidence do we have of how these different Native Americans regarded the English? We have a lot of very earthy descriptions of Europeans uh, by natives filtered through Europeans that English colonists were hairy, dirty, smelly, lazy, incompetent, uh, couldn't grow food to save their lives, had to always borrow and beg for food and trade for food, didn't know how to hunt, didn't know how to clam, didn't know how to you know, live off the land in terms of natural resources. Other descriptions too about domesticated animals that Natives really despised the pigs and the cows that just roamed all over the landscape and ruined native farms and and garden plots and so forth. There are many English accounts of local people trying to help the new settlers survive. Squanto continued with them and was their interpreter and was a special instrument sent of God for their good beyond their expectation. He directed them how to set their corn where to take fish and to procure other commodities, and was also their pilot to bring them to unknown places for their profit, and never left them till he died. William Bradford of Plymouth Plantation, 1620-1647 Early natives, whether it's Massasoit in the Plymouth Colony or it's Powhatan with the Jamestown settlers, There's an early hope that these newly arrived English colonists might be vibrant trading partners and might be people that would aid natives in terms of their consolidation of local power. 
And when things begin to shift and these native leaders very quickly realize that the point is not just to stay perched on the edge and to trade, but to actually take over, it's this growing dread of, oh my God, these people are here to stay. Uh, that's when there's this pushback that begins to happen. And that's where wars erupt and these battles erupt. How would you sum up the relationship that evolves between the English settlers and those Native American groups that they encounter? Within that destructive and within that sort of wider settler colonial context, you find the whole entire range of human interaction. You find really uh, warm expressions of people who got to know each other really well and believed in each other. You find intermarriage, you find, of course, violence and rape and taking children away and enslavement. And you find trading relations and sharing of knowledge. And you find religious encounters where natives are trying to resist, uh, but also engage European attempts to evangelize them. But the challenge, I think, for us as interpreters of the past is how to keep these two things in balance how to tell these rich stories of interaction and human contact in a way that are two equals coming together, even if both sides thought they were superior to the other in many ways. Um, So how to tell that human story while not neglecting this larger context of settler colonial violence that never, ever goes away. In fact, today, this may surprise some of your listeners, but uh, Native Americans today, at least in North America within the United States, very much see themselves as being colonized in an ongoing way. So for them, the settler colonial reality has never ended. It didn't end with the American Revolution, right? This is not a post-colonial space like India or South Africa or something. This is still actively colonized from their perspectives. And all the while, even though no gold has been found, the Virginia Company is ramping up its efforts to bring more settlers out to America to replace the dead and grow the colony. Throughout England, pamphlets are distributed. Clergymen are even recruited to deliver sermons extolling the virtues of emigration. James Evans again. People who were trying to encourage people to migrate often employed people who were known at the time as spirits who would you know go to fairs and people would bang on drums and they would go to public houses or whatever and and try and rally people by talking to them in america the soil is fertile food will drop into your mouth people live lives of alacrity and cheerfulness where any laborious honest man may become rich and own their own land 17th century handbill The law is changed to allow convicted criminals to be transported across the Atlantic. Local parishes grasp the opportunity to offload their poor. And even children as young as eight years old, perhaps seen begging or pickpocketing, might find themselves becoming involuntary migrants. Their family might not even know what had become of them. The word kidnap was coined in the 17th century and it referred to the napping, the abduction of kids. People were terrified in the course of the 17th century, caused an enormous amount of concern. And, you know, you read court records of people being charged with abducting people. It's rare to get children's perspective on how they felt about being sent to America. But one account we do have is of a boy thought to be about 12 or 13 years old and unusually for that time, able to read and write. So Richard Pleathorne was shipped in the 1620s to Virginia. His parents were probably unable to look after 
the number of children that they had and had shipped him. You know, he wrote letters back to his mother and father about how unhappy he was. Loving and kind father and mother, hoping in God of your good health. I have nothing to comfort me, nor there is nothing to be gotten here but sickness and death. I am not half a quarter so strong as I was in England, and all is for want of victuals. I have eaten more in a day at home than I have allowed for me here for a week. I entreat you not to forget me, but redeem me, for this day we hear that there is 26 Englishmen slain by the Indians. All of the things that migrants like him have been told about the the ease of getting food, getting wild animals or fruit and so forth, bore no relation at all to the nature of life. In reality, you know, he lived on a diet of peas and and watery gruel. He said that in all the time he'd been in America, he didn't ever so much as laid eyes on a deer. Or the truth is that we're not allowed because there'd been a massacre in Jamestown. We're not allowed to go and get it. We can't leave the settlement. We shall hardly have any crop this year. What will it be when we shall go a month or two and never see a bit of bread? As my master doth say, we must do. And he said he is not able to keep all of us. Then we shall be turned up to the land to eat bark off trees or mould off the ground. With weeping tears, I beg of you to help me. I hope all my brothers and sisters are in good health. As for my part, the answer of this letter will be the life or death to me. Therefore, good father, send help as soon as you can. Your loving son, Richard Freethorn, 3rd of April, 1623. Sadly, his parents are already dead and in no position to help their son. Soon, Richard Freethorn is dead too. His letters show the abject misery and desperation facing those early colonists. Despite ship after ship bringing new settlers, few survive. And by 1624, the Virginia Company has failed as a commercial enterprise, unable to give its shareholders the sort of returns it's promised. The colony comes under direct rule of the king. But the flow of emigrants continues. The Virginia colonists have discovered a crop that will make them money. Tobacco, a new habit that they're cultivating back in Europe. The catch is that it's an incredibly labour-intensive crop to grow. Before the takeoff of the slave trade, the majority of the labour was poor white people as indentured servants. If people were indentured servants, then what would happen is that they would have their passage paid for them. They would be given a couple of suits of clothes. They would be given the very basics of life. For the period that they signed up for an indenture, which was usually between about four and seven years, they would essentially be a slave for that limited period. At the end of that period, they would then be given their freedom and be given some land and so forth. And obviously what they weren't told is that the great majority of people didn't live out their period of indenture. Something like 10% of people actually survived. So where were these poor people coming from? Initially, they migrated within this country. So they might have you know, been born in a, in a rural town, migrated to London in the hope that they would find work and jobs and so forth in London. And it was only that they couldn't within London that they were then persuaded to take ship. The fact that the capital city and the by far the largest centre of population and industry and so forth is also 
its major port has a huge impact upon the numbers of people who are going. But they also went from places like Southampton, like Plymouth or Liverpool, all around the coast that there are substantial port settlements where people did go from. There's nowhere in Britain that's further than 75 miles from the sea. That, together with the availability of large numbers of merchant ships and the offer of free passage, makes emigration a very real option for an ever-increasing number of people. In the course of the 17th century, something like 400,000 people left England across the Atlantic, and probably half of those went to the colonies in the Caribbean. So probably around about 200,000 went to North America. People don't know the exact numbers because people weren't counting. But given that the total population of England then was in the region of five and five and a half million, that's an incredibly large number of people. If we were to take the entire population of three regional cities today, kind of Manchester, Liverpool, Birmingham, something like that, if you were to take the entire population of those cities and, and they would disappear instantly, that's something like the number of people that we're talking about migrating. And this was in addition to the emigrants travelling elsewhere during the 17th century. For example, an estimated 330,000 people migrated from England and Scotland to Ireland, and many tens of thousands more to European countries such as Poland and Sweden, as soldiers, traders and religious refugees. It really was a time of unprecedented movement of people. Many more people left England than left other countries. The next biggest exporter of people during the 17th century was Spain. Probably twice as many people left England as left Spain. If you look at another Atlantic country like France, a country with a larger population, something like 40 times as many people left England as left France during the 17th century. People talked at the time about what they called the swarming of the English. Swarm. A group of social insects, such as bees, that leave an overcrowded hive in order to start a new colony. People spoke at the time about what they called the late unspeakable increases of people, meaning that the rises in the number of population in the 16th century has been about 3 million. This is England. In the course of the 17th century, rising to about 5, 5.5 million. So it's almost doubling. You know, the population kept growing, the economy didn't keep growing, destitution was much larger, vagrancy was much larger. Any hope of feeding family became harder and harder. So people went simply out of desperation. One particular ship, they talked about it being mostly miserable poor people on board. And it's true of the people who went generally. They were mostly miserable poor people. For most of the 17th century, there's actually a belief that there are too many people and it's good to get rid of them. Over the course of the 17th century, as the American colonies are consolidated, the mass outflows of people seem to become a source of national pride. A silver medal issued by Charles II in 1670 features the profiles of the king and queen on one side. On the reverse of the medal is a map of the world with Britain in the centre, the Americas to the west, Africa to the south and India to the east. The king is dressed in armour like a Roman emperor, and the inscription on the medal, with not a little exaggeration, proclaims... Diffusus in Orbe Britannus. The Briton spread all over the globe. 
the consequences of that migration could scarcely be overstated. I mean, the very fact that so many people went who spoke English has had consequences for the culture and future direction of North America that we still live with today and still shape our world today. With the benefit of 2020 hindsight, we can see how many features of the early English emigration to America set the pattern for the next 300 years. Competing with other European powers to acquire new territories, exploiting natural resources which require large amounts of cheap human labour. Operating with the absolute conviction that God is on your side and that as a Briton, you've got a divine right to kill, displace and subjugate indigenous peoples and claim their land as your own creating settlements in the image of those that you've left back in Britain and imposing the English language and Christianity everywhere you go. It's a heady concoction and one that would profoundly reshape the world in more ways than that mass of poor emigrants setting out from the ports of England in the early 17th century could ever have imagined. Thanks for listening to Departures. In the next episode, I'll be finding out about the 17th century women emigrants crossing the Atlantic to find a husband. Join me then. Departures was produced and presented by Mukti Jane Campion. Music is by Shakira Malkani. Readings were by Adrian Prater and Will Skerry. The podcast series is a culture-wise production for the Migration Museum and has been supported by the Arts Council England. To find out more about the Migration Museum and current exhibitions, visit the website www.migrationmuseum.org.